Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, dental benefit launch. Dental care is an essential part of children's health and well-being. Making good on his agreement with NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, Prime Minister Trudeau opens applications for the children's dental benefit. Does the NDP still have leverage over the government heading into the new year? And a call for pause on MAID. Canada is set to expand access to medical assistance in dying to patients whose sole concern is mental illness. But now the country's top psychiatrists want the feds to hold off. We'll find out why in just a few minutes. Plus, healthcare heartaches overtake the pocketbook pinch. New polling for CTV News shows healthcare is the top concern in this country. So is the government listening? We'll break it down with our press gallery. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. There are half a million kids in this country who don't have access uh, to dental care. And that means parents either don't send their kids to the dentist or have to make impossible choices about what not to buy for their kids if they're going to send them to the dentist. That's not something we should be living in this country, particularly because we know that uh, oral health is an intrinsic part of overall health. And with that, the Liberals have checked the box on a key part of their agreement with the NDP. Today, eligible Canadians can apply for the first ever federal dental care benefit. So, who can apply? Well, families making less than $90,000 a year can get the benefit for children that are under the age of 12. How much families get will really depend on their income. And on December 12th, low-income renters will be able to access a one-time top-up of the Canadian housing benefit. But as we head into the new year, how will the NDP push the federal government on rolling out a full dental program? And will the NDP pressure the Liberals to stand up to Danielle Smith's controversial Sovereignty Act? Let's find out. Joining me now is NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Mr. Singh, thank you so much for making the time today. Now, I'll start with dental care. As of today, eligible Canadians can apply for funding through Canada's first federal dental care benefit. Now, this isn't the full program that you had wanted. I know that the timeline to move this from being a benefit to an actual program is by the end of next year. But are you confident that the Liberals will actually meet that deadline? Yes, uh, so far... Uh, we have shown that we've been able to push this government to deliver. So if it was up to the Liberals on their own, then no. But since we've been able to push them and force them to deliver on what we've uh, gotten written down in the document, we are confident we can make that happen again. This is big news for a lot of young people. Half a million Canadians, uh, young people under 12, are going to be able to get their teeth looked after. This is going to be life-changing for families and those kids. And this is because New Democrats fought to achieve it. And we know the next stage is going to be really important to have the national program where you can go to a dentist or a hygienist and that that bill will be paid for. That's going to be something that we're going to be very closely monitoring and pushing to make sure we meet that deadline. Now, you say you got what you pushed for, but if I'm not mistaken, what you actually wanted was a full program this year, not just a benefit. No, according to the agreement that we've uh, disclosed to the public, uh, the first phase was always for children under 12 to be the first phase, understanding that getting the national program up and running would take a bit more time. And then the second phase was always envisioned to be the national program with uh, the benefit of 18 and under seniors and people living with handicaps. 
a program, mind you, that the Liberals and Conservatives both voted against two times in the past, and now we're making happen. So I understand. I, I'm assuming then that you had to sort of, um, you know, refocus your expectations given the timeline. But I'll move on. The CRA did brief reporters on the system yesterday, describing it as a streamlined and user-friendly benefit. Do you agree with that? That's what we understand so far, and we'll be paying close attention to people, and we're hoping that people apply. If they qualify, please use this opportunity to get your kids the care they need, and we'll be paying close attention to people's feedback. If things aren't working, we're going to encourage fixes to happen right away. There's something else in the Supply and Confidence Agreement. It talks about continuing progress towards a universal national pharmacare program. Now, that's progress, but you keep pushing the government publicly to actually have a program. But if it's not in your agreement, why do you keep pushing the government when it's not what they've agreed to? In the agreement, we've outlined that specifically by the 2023, we will have a legislation that sets the framework for national pharmacare that has to be tabled and passed by the end of 2023. So that's, again, something that the Liberals and the Conservatives voted against, despite multiple commissions saying we need to have pharmacare, and despite many people saying they would make a huge difference in their lives. According to the agreement, that has to be tabled by the end of next year. And again, this is something that the Liberals oppose, the Conservatives also oppose, and now we're forcing them to do it. But it's the agreement looking towards it. It's not an actual program. Are you okay with just that, not having the actual program? Even though I know what's in the agreement, I, I know what's in your agreement, but I know that deep down you actually want that program rather than words on a page, don't you? Well, we're getting the legislation passed. So that's, that's a concrete uh, written into the agreement that legislation has to be passed by next year. And then the following year for 2024, we need to see a formulary, so all the medications that should be covered. And then by the final year, a bulk purchasing plan. So all the steps necessary for a national universal pharmacare plan are outlined in our agreement step by step, year by year. And by the end of the agreement, the full plan should be passed in legislation and should be tabled in terms of all the steps. And then the next step, will, the remaining step would be to have provinces sign up. I want to shift gears to the Alberta Sovereignty Within the United Canada Act. Um, you had said that it's a threat to the healthcare system. Why is that? Well, first and foremost, it doesn't respond to the needs of Albertans. What I hear from Albertans is they're worried about the cost of living and they're worried about their healthcare system. This act doesn't respond to any of those needs. Secondly, given some of the comments we've heard from the Premier, her comments about people having to fundraise or should should fundraise for healthcare, people have to pay to get access to hospitals. Uh, those that approach shows very clearly that she's not in favor of a of a universal program. Couple that with a, a law uh, that's that's passed in in Alberta that allows uh, the premier basically in secret behind closed doors with cabinet to make laws, not in the light of day of legislature, but behind closed doors. Again, that's very un- undemocratic, but it also threatens that uh, she might use that to, to undermine our healthcare system by undermining something like the Canada Health Act. And that, to me, is a serious concern, and Albertans have raised this as a concern. So the Prime Minister has said that he doesn't want to pick a fight with the provinces, uh, but do you think that this act is worth a fight with Alberta? And what have you said in some of those regular meetings with the provinces, um, what have you said to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau about this act? Well, this act is a problem, but what's the bigger problem is the lack of leadership of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to respond to the healthcare crisis that we have. I called on the Prime Minister to stand up to conservative premiers that are privatizing our healthcare, like Doug Ford, or those that are threatening to do so, like Daniel Smith. 
Uh, what we want to see happen is federal leadership. Instead of right now, what we have a prime minister who's not even meeting with the premiers to talk about solutions. When I'm prime minister, I'll meet with the premiers to find solutions and I'll force uh, the, the solutions that we can do with the powers that we have at the federal level to solve the problems that Canadians are dealing with. We know that kids are, are not able to access health care. We know that people are waiting far too long in emergency rooms. We can fix this. But so you want Canadians to wait until 2025 uh, when there might be an election? Or why not just leverage what you have in the supply and conference agreement and the meetings that you have with the prime minister to push him on this? Absolutely. I'm saying I would when, when I'm prime minister, I'll be doing this regularly. But right now we're pushing the government to do what's necessary. And what that is, is, is meeting with the premiers, solving this healthcare crisis, immediately injecting funds to help with the backlogs in emergency rooms, finding solutions to unlock some of the potential of internationally trained Canadians who are here, who have international training in healthcare, but can't work in their fields because of a lack of recognition or credentials. We need to solve this problem. And so far, Justin Trudeau hasn't shown the commitment or the urgency to deal with this crisis. And that's what I'm calling for. So just in closing, yes or no, do you want Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to fight this Alberta sovereignty within a United Canada Act? I, I think that, yes, the Trudeau, Justin Trudeau should be fighting. Uh, the outcome of that type of act is to undermine health care, undermine workers' rights. And I expect the Prime Minister to be looking for solutions to fight back. And yes, absolutely to fight back against something that's undemocratic and that undermines um, Albertans' protections for things like the Canada Health Act and other federal protections. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. So if you think you're eligible for the new Canada Dental Benefit, here is how you can apply. There are two online options. You either have to go to the Canada Revenue Agency site, click on the My Account section, then follow the steps there, or you can do it through your Service Canada account. If you prefer an offline option, the CRA has set up a dedicated dental benefit phone line for applications. The number is 1-800-715-8836. And there are serious concerns being raised today about Canada's medical assistance in dying laws, also known as MAID. It comes as the Association of Psychiatrists is calling on the federal government to delay the expansion of MAID to include those whose sole medical condition is a mental disorder. The Canadians whose only medical condition is mental illness will be eligible for MAID starting March 17th of next year. This includes primarily psychiatric conditions like depression or personality disorders. It does not include neurodevelopmental disorders like ADHD and autism spectrum disorders, nor does it cover neurocognitive disorders like dementia or other conditions that may affect cognitive abilities. The Prime Minister was asked about the call for pause today. We understand that making sure we're respecting people's rights and their choices at the same time as we protect the most vulnerable is a very important but challenging balance to establish. That's why we're working with experts, why we listen uh, to uh, various stakeholders and advocates around the country uh, who are weighing in on the best way to move forward to make sure we are respecting people's lives, rights and choices while at the same time ensuring that they are protected. The MAID became legal in Canada in 2016, but the Trudeau government was forced to revise the law after a Quebec court found the requirement for reasonable foreseeability of natural death 
was unconstitutional. A revised made law was passed in 2021, but the government temporarily excluded mental illness to allow themselves more time to study the issue. So with only months to go, is Canada ready to expand MAID to cover mental disorders? Let's bring in Valerie Taylor. She's the head of the Association of Chairs of Psychiatry in Canada, the same association that is calling for the feds to delay MAID's expansion. She's also the psychiatric chair of the University of Calgary. Thank you so much for being with us. Now, the government gave themselves this extension, but is Canada ready to expand MAID for those who solely suffer from mental disorder? We want to acknowledge that significant work has been done around this area, but we also know that in the past few years, there have been a number of other healthcare challenges. And so for us, we would suggest that perhaps we are not yet ready for a March 17th launch and that we want to help work to ensure that when this gets rolled out, it gets rolled out in a way that's in the best um, efforts of patients, providers and their families. So if you think we're not ready for March, what are some of those sticking points that you want to have fixed first? I think we just need some clarity that around issues that are going to get complicated for people, defining treatment resistance, how these pathways and the assessment processes are implemented, exactly who does the assessments, and ensuring that those providers are trained up and are prepared. We also need to ensure that there is a robust educational program available for individuals to become aware of this within the psychiatric uh, training programs. And so... We know, and we also need to be ready to implement this on the ground provincially because there's more than just approval federally. And so while we acknowledge that a significant amount of excellent work has been done, we don't want to see that lost with a rush and the 11th hour to kind of meet an arbitrary March 17th deadline. We want to work to ensure that this gets launched successfully. We do have a statement from the Minister of uh, Health, Jean-Yves Duclos, a spokesperson, uh, said um, that we will listen, we will continue to listen to the experts and collaborate with our provincial and territorial counterparts to ensure that a strong framework is in place before MAID becomes available to those for whom mental disorders is a sole underlying condition, end quote. As an expert on this matter, do you feel that your association or profession was not adequately consulted on the upcoming expanded MAID framework? I think that a number of groups have been consulted, and I do feel like they're talking to the right people. Sometimes it's impossible to talk to everybody. I think we would like to be more involved and we're offering up our services to help because again, we represent the different medical schools, institutions across the country. And so we wanna ensure that it gets rolled out well provincially once this does come into effect. And so we bring a different perspective, which is one of the different provinces. And so we wanna ensure that we're there to help this work. And very important work it is. The head of the Association of Chairs of Psychiatry in Canada, Valerie Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. To the other big story of the day, Canada came within inches of a tie in their final World Cup match of the tournament. This header went off the crossbar and bounced right onto the goal line before, before being knocked out by another Canadian player. It was just that close. Heartbreak, heartbreak for the team and the fans right across this country. But there was still a lot to build on for next time. CTV's Heather Wright has been cut. 
She has more from Doha. Heather? Mike, certainly a disappointing result for the Canadians. They had been hoping to get that first World Cup win, but they fell 2-1 to one against Morocco tonight. They got so close to evening things up, but they will have to settle for those two goals that they scored here at the World Cup as they look ahead four years from now. And Coach John Herdman has talked a lot about how much this team has learned just being here on soccer's biggest stage. They have shown that they are able to play with some of the best teams in the world. They've also seen what they need to do, what they need to improve in order to get those results, to get that first win at a Men's World Cup. Fans leaving the stadium tonight say they're proud of this team, saying this team really represented Canada very well and that they're hopeful for the future. This is a very young team and it bodes well for them four years from now. They now have World Cup experience. They'll carry that with them when they go back home to Canada four years from now when Canada will host the World Cup alongside uh, the United States and Mexico. So certainly some really valuable experience gained here at the World Cup. They would have liked to leave with a win. They leave, though, with their first World Cup goal in a men's tournament, and they'll have to wait for that win four years from now. Mike. Heather Wright in Doha. Thanks for this, Heather. Still to come, trade talk and the Indo-Pacific strategy. Expanding economic ties in that region is a big part of the plan, but what about China? Will Canada's stronger stance against China mean businesses should brace for a trade war? We put that question to Canada's Minister of Trade, Mary Ng, when Power Play continues. Germany's parliament voted today to officially ratify the free trade agreement between the European Union and Canada. That step comes even though the agreement known as CETA went into force five years ago. The deal slashes the majority of customs duties on the goods traded between the EU and Canada. While most of the benefits have already started flowing from CETA, Canada is now focused on a closer economic relationship with the Indo-Pacific region. So how will this strategy impact Canadian businesses? Let's find out. And joining me now from Candiac, Quebec, is the Minister of Small Business, Expert Promotion and International Trade of Canada, Mary Ng. Thanks so much for taking the time, Minister. We'll dig right in. While today does mark the five-year anniversary of the Canada-EU trade agreement, all eyes are on that Indo-Pacific strategy and the focus specifically on trade. I wanted to ask you, this the strategy has been called clear-eyed on China while continuing to do business with the world's second largest economy. Now, China has said it isn't very happy with this new stance. So how much do you think this could cost Canada in terms of trade retaliation? Well, I'm not going to speculate. What I am going to say, though, is that the Indo-Pacific strategy is a strong strategy that is helping Canada and uh, declaring that Canada is going to grow in a part of the world where in seven years from now, it's going to have a third of the world's middle class. By 2040, it's going to be half of the global GDP in the world. And uh, there are 660 million customers in that region. And Canada is making the investments into that region so that we can grow and that we can help our Canadian exporters and businesses pursue those opportunities. And to bring it right back home, when they grow, it's great Canadian jobs. They're not speculating, but at the same time, is it something that you have gamed out? Is there a contingency plan for any type of trade retaliation from China? Well, 
I've been really clear about uh, about supporting businesses who continue to operate uh, around the world, including in China. We will continue to support them. But in the strategy, what you are also seeing is, uh, you know, is expertise and some advice that uh, the Canadian Trade Commissioner Service will provide to Canadian businesses. Canadian businesses will make the decisions as they will. Uh, and they should, uh, and the Canadian government will be there to provide them with, uh, you know, with some of that advice. Uh, but we certainly are going to deepen our relationship in the uh, in the region. And today, uh, I'm here. I'm in Quebec. I am welcoming the executive vice president uh, from the European Union. As you said, on the fifth anniversary of CETA, we're going to have an opportunity to talk about how well that agreement is going. Today, Germany has ratified this important agreement as well. And what you're seeing is you're seeing Canada uh, and. I'm here actually at a great innovative company that is working on uh, on, on the supply chain that is battery, that is clean mm-hmm. technology, that is going to help grow those great green jobs. So, uh, so you're, what you're seeing is you're seeing trade diversification, which is the mandate that I've been given uh, by the Prime Minister, and I'm very focused on helping create those opportunities um, around the world for our Canadian exporters. And good opportunities with CETA, but I did want to go back to the Indo-Pacific strategy, which does include trade with India. Now, it's on track to be the world's most populous country by the year 2030. Two-way trade with India that Canada has right now is just valued just over $10 billion in 2019. But obviously, you see a lot more potential here. Now, other countries and trading blocs like the UK and EU are in advanced negotiations with India. What do you say to critics who believe that Canada is linked to the game? Well, I would say that uh, I've taken a very pragmatic approach, uh, one where we are working with India to create commercially um, uh, viable opportunities uh, for Canadian companies looking to pursue new markets in India and for those who are there already growing. We have a very outsized uh, investment portfolio in India. We've got some of our biggest pension funds and investors who are in India. And what we're looking to do is deepen that relationship. In the Indo-Pacific strategy, you are seeing that uh, we are going to keep advancing the work that we are doing on an early progress trade agreement with India. Uh, we're going to uh, have a Canada-India desk. So we're going to actually be practical to help Canadian businesses, particularly those small and medium-sized businesses, enter into a sizable and big market like India. Uh, I continue to work with my colleague, the uh, trade minister, uh, Goyal in India, and uh, and that work will continue. But uh, uh, this is all about helping Canadian businesses pursue those uh, very important markets. And you know, with India, remember there are deep people-to-people ties, and I'm hoping that uh, that we continue to accelerate that work for those terrific uh, Indo-Canadian entrepreneurs who are operating here, but also operating India to gain the benefits uh, from this deepened relationship. But do you think that we should have been in India a lot deeper than we are right now in terms of trade a lot sooner? Well, we have been there. And, uh, and, um, and I think that uh, what we are doing and what I've been doing is taking a very uh, pragmatic approach. I would say that uh, the trade dialogue that I started with India uh, very recently um, on, on the heels of our fifth economic dialogue with my counterpart um, is, uh, you know, is timing that others are doing as well. So I think that uh, I think that what you're seeing are uh, democracies working together, creating more resilient supply chains and to harness the opportunities that come from that. I just wanted to finish on this, uh, Minister. Part of increasing trade in the Indo-Pacific region means making sure that we have infrastructure to handle all of that 
on this side of the country. So that means significant investments in transportation projects through the National Trade Corridors Fund, which also means expansion or increased traffic in the Vancouver and Prince Rupert ports. What do you say to people in B.C. who are concerned about more ship traffic on the West Coast? I think what uh, I would say is uh, that they are seeing from a government where uh, environment and climate change and tackling that is a top priority for this government and we have acted in that way from the first day we have been with the first day we formed government um, the, what you're seeing in the Indo-Pacific strategy is uh, a deepened investment that allows our goods to uh, come through Canada and leave Canada and to get into those important markets but uh, we've always said the environment and the economy can go hand in hand and uh, and, the, the, and 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 this work uh, will continue Minister of Trade, Mary Ng, thank you so much for um, joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Still to come, Alberta sovereignty rejected by treaty chiefs. Are chiefs willing to consult with Premier Daniel Smith, even though the Sovereignty Act is already drafted? And should Prime Minister Justin Trudeau push back against it? We talked to a chief who rejected the act next on Power Play. The Sovereignty Act is unconstitutional. That's the message Treaty 8 chiefs in Alberta are sending to Premier Daniel Smith on her recently tabled Sovereignty Within a United Canada Act. Treaty chiefs in Alberta rejected the act even before it hit the floor of the legislature. They say the bill undermines the treaties between their nations and the Crown, and those were made before Alberta was even created. So how will they uphold their treaties if this act becomes law, and should the Prime Minister fight back? Let's find out. Joining me now is Athabasca Chippewan First Nation Chief Alan Adam. Chief Adam is also the Treaty 8 Chief. Thanks for joining us and making the time, Chief. I wanted to ask you, you say the Sovereignty Act is an unlawful attempt to abuse and exploit your resources, your lands, and your people. What is your biggest concern with this act? If uh, the Alberta government continues down this path, then uh, this would uh, eliminate a lot of regulatory uh, components that are there to set the grounds for uh, making development happen. But uh, she's there to weaken that and without any um, gestures to the environment and stuff like that, to other reasons and climate change being a big problem right now, you know, where world leaders are speaking about climate change. Danielle Smith figures that she could just develop uh, Alberta and claim the Sovereignty Act and say that Alberta belongs to, to Albertans. Well, I have a different feeling about that because, you know, the question was asked once at the UN to the Canadian uh, uh, government and the delegate. Uh, delegation was that, how did you obtain the right to Canada? Well, that's the same question that the Alberta government should answer. How did you obtain the right to the land from Alberta? When we have treaties signing with the Crown, um, you know, to, to my knowledge, I think this would be just a big mess. Um, the UCP government never uh, had any intentions to bring in this uh, bill to us. Uh, they did not want to consult with us. Now they're just waiting for the reaction from the First Nations and they're going to go about this bill 
and, you know, try to pass it. It's uh, unfortunate that Alberta looks at ways of uh, manipulating the process and, uh, you know, just trying to get to the Canadian government and, you know, for transfer payments and everything and having more power at the table. It just makes no sense that we have to uh, bypass all the regulatory uh, components to the environment just to get her ways to say, yes, Alberta is open for business. Uh, and that uh, Chief, uh, Chief, I just wanted to ask you about the federal government's role. The prime minister has said he doesn't want a fight with Alberta, but this is also a government that says it's committed to reconciliation. If this act will undermine your treaties, do you think that the prime minister has a duty to fight back? The prime minister has an obligation uh, to fight back. Uh, he sits on behalf of the crown. Um, he is the prime minister. He is the head of the country. So therefore, when we signed treaty with the crown, he took over uh, the responsibilities to make sure that the commitment that was signed on, that those commitments will carry on for as long as the sun shines, the grass grows, and the river flows. And I'm sure you will be talking to him about that. Athabasca, Chepawan First Nation Chief, Alan Adam, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We appreciate this. For sure. And it don't look grim for, it looks grim for the Alberta government, and it looks like it's just going to be in the courts for a long time to come. Yeah, and we'll continue to watch that. Thank you again. Still to come, the Liberals make good on a key promise to the NDP. So what kind of leverage does that give Jagmeet Singh heading into the new year? Well, former NDP leader Tom Mulcair joins the press gallery next. Power Play will be right back after this. So as of today, families can apply for the federal dental benefit. It fulfills part of the Confidence and Supply Agreement, the NDP, and Liberals inked earlier this year. But with Canadians experiencing a high cost of living on their grocery bills and at the pumps, does this money help the Liberals and NDP score some political points? And does it give the NDP more leverage with the Liberals? Well, let's bring in the press gallery panel to weigh in. From the Toronto Star, we have Stephanie Levitz from the Globe and Mail. We have Ian Bailey. He also writes the Globe's daily politics briefing. And our special guest on the panel is CTV News political analyst and former NDP leader, Tom Mulcair. Thank you all for being here. Tom, let's start with you. How much of a political victory is this for the NDP and Jagmeet Singh? It was essential for Mr. Singh to be able to deliver on this before the end of the year, which is what he had promised. A lot of NDPers raised one eyebrow when he signed that deal with Trudeau. I remember when I ran for the leadership after the untimely demise of Jack Layton, the worst slight they could use against me was, oh, he's a former liberal. Because, of course, in Quebec, uh, there was no NDP and provincially. That's what I indeed was. So Mr. Singh is going to have a bit of explaining to do if he doesn't deliver on all the things that were on that wish list. And so far... So good for him. Still going to be tough for him in the next election, though, Mike, because it's very easy to see that as they go door to door and try to say why people shouldn't vote liberals, people are going to say, well, if they're that bad, why did you support them for several years? But that being said, uh, Mr. Trudeau survives and gets to rule as if he had a majority, even though he's only got 30 uh, some odd percent of the vote. And Mr. Singh gets to keep his members and keep them there for the next couple of years and try to establish himself in the minds of Canadian voters. Yeah, and voters don't have to go to the polls like we did, what was it, 
you know, two, twice in, in three years, Stephanie. Uh, Steph, go to you with this one. This is targeted aid for Canadians um, across the country that are feeling the pinch from inflation. How much pressure is on the federal government to offer more aid for Canadians, especially when we see the inflationary crisis? Yeah, I mean, the pressure is evergreen, I suppose, right? Everybody would like to see their costs go down. Everybody would like to see their goods get cheaper. Mm-hmm. Everybody would like to see their bills, you know, be reduced. The question becomes, what is the most appropriate policy lever that the government can pull in order to make that happen without, as they themselves have acknowledged, sort of fueling that inflationary fire, right? If you put more money into people's pockets and they go out and spend it, and does that potentially drive prices up when mm-hmm. demand, you know, supply rather remains scarce in some areas? So that's the fine line the government has to walk. I mean, there have been some complaints that the way they've structured it so far does, in fact, that. The targeted dental benefit, of course, not being one of those things. But um, they will have to keep finding ways to, I think, help people. They can't keep reannouncing old promises and saying, "Okay, look at what we've done, look at what we've done. But you can't imagine a scenario in which we get into the next federal budget and they're able to conjure up some math that shows that they've reduced, you know, the average grocery bill or the average bill of a Canadian family, average family, by X amount over time. I think the other thing that they're winning, you know, some respect from from their critics is that most of their programs so far, Mike, they're targeted aid. They're targeted mm-hmm. to the people who are feeling the pinch the most, and that's important for those people. However, there is a broader swath of Canadians who are looking at their own pocketbooks and saying, well, like, but what about me? Yeah, and, and Ian, to that point, I mean, there's so many more Canadians that are saying, what about me? And it looks like the government is saying, well, we're going to keep going with the targeted measures. But how much of their attention now, this federal government, is going to be taken away now in the window is this Sovereignty Act within a United Canada and the potential, even though Trudeau says he doesn't want to fight Daniel Smith on it, well, I mean, will he be compelled to when you have Jagmeet Singh that is saying, well, I'm worried that this is actually going to attack health care? Well, you know, I think that um, Mr. Trudeau is taking a calm approach now. He's not reacting to the Alberta situation as he did to the notwithstanding clause or as he did to uh, New Brunswick's moves on bilingualism. So it's all very calm now. And I guess this will last into uh, into next year. And uh, we'll see in the long term whether this act survives, whether the Smith government survives or whether it dies in the provincial election in Alberta next year. Mr. Singh's concerns about the Health Act are, are are interesting, of course, and reasonable, but we're going to have to see if uh, Premier Smith actually goes in that direction. We're going to have to see how long it takes for this legislation to actually uh, be passed and to yeah. be enacted and how that plays out. So, you know, let's get through the holidays, I guess, and uh, come back in January and we'll see how some of these things uh, play out, I suppose. Tom, we're going to shift gears for you, but because you brought up you being in, in the National Assembly, well, we got to bring up this now. The Parti Québécois today denied entry into the legislature after refusing to swear oath to King Charles III. It was basically a no oath, no seat for you type of thing. The PQ went so far uh, as not swearing the oath that other parties uh, don't want to. What do you make of this? It's a very interesting uh, bit of arm wrestling on the part of the Pepsi Québécois, which had its worst result in history. But they still got more votes than the Liberals who wound up in opposition as the official opposition because they have much more efficient votes all concentrated in the western part of Montreal. They wound up with 21 seats. And as I say, the Pepsi Québécois only got three. One of the things that they've set down uh, since the departure of Queen Elizabeth II is that they will not swear an oath to King Charles III, they're saying, look, this is a reflection of our colonial past. We want nothing to do with it. And it's taken on a life of its own. Even the day before yesterday, when it was the only thing on the agenda was to choose a new speaker, everybody kept talking about the fact that the PQ wasn't in the house. Yesterday, speech from the throne, inaugural speech from the GOAT, where's the PQ? 
Today, they got to the door, they were turned away, they didn't turn it, turn it into a circus, they walked away and they were still giving their lines. So, even though even Renny Levesque swore an oath to Queen Elizabeth II, she was the incarnation of the institution. She had been there for so long. Nobody, I think, really questioned it when it was Queen Elizabeth II. But the change in regime and in the monarchy has led a lot of people to say, why are we still with the history of the country, with the history of the, the deportation of the Acadians, with everything that happened in Quebec after the conquest in 1759? Why in heaven's name are we still swearing an oath to the King of England? And that's the issue that's on the table. They're going to change it next week. The, the CAC government doesn't like to be showed up by anybody else. So they, they feel that the Pounds right. Québécois got more than enough oxygen on this, and they want to move on. So they're going to bring in legislation to remove the requirement to have the oath to the King of England. Tom, I got less than 30 seconds, but I wanted to ask you, when you consider that they only have three uh, M&As, is this their best way of getting attention? I don't know if that was the initial intent, but I can tell you they've been getting a lot of attention because it's really drawn uh, people towards the Quebec Solidaire. So this is the very strongly left-wing party that itself has 11 seats, fought hard to get an official party status, even though they're supposed to have 12. They got that. And they're looking a bit foolish because they talked a good game, said they would never swear the oath to King Charles III, but they all did behind closed doors, maybe with their fingers crossed. So the Pouchy Québécois has staked out some interesting <laughs> turf with the more nationalist side. It, it doesn't count with your fingers crossed, I guess, Tom, but uh, exactly. I appreciate that. Thank you for being on the press gallery. Steph and Ian, you'll be sticking around for us. Coming up, a new Nanos research poll shows that more Canadians are more worried about health care than inflation. Pollster Nick Nanos breaks down his new numbers for us on the press gallery when we return on Power Play. now takes 67% of the average monthly income to pay bills on the, the average home. In fact, the average mortgage payment for a new home in Toronto is now $7,000. And that's if you can afford the home because it takes now 27 years for the average person to save up for the down payment on that home. How is it possible that the average Canadian cannot afford the average home here in the nation with the second biggest supply of land anywhere on earth. Well, affordability is a major issue for Canadians with Conservative leader Pierre Polyev today in the House citing a striking National Bank report on housing costs. But a new poll from Nanos Research finds that health care has become the top national issue of concern for Canadians. This latest Nanos tracking poll shows a four-week change where health care surpassed inflation and jobs as the leading issue. This should come as no surprise as Canada's pediatric hospitals come under major strain this past month due to a surge in the flu, RSV and COVID-19 cases right across Canada. But what other major issue, uh, health issues have come up this past month? Well, the failure of the federal and provincial territorial ministers to finalize a deal over boosting the federal health transfer. So with health care preoccupying more and more Canadians, should the governments get back to the table sooner rather than later? Let's bring in the press gallery again. We have the Toronto Star's Stephanie Levitz, the Globe and Mail's Ian Bailey, and our special guest, Nick Nanos. He's the founder and chief data scientist at Nanos Research. Nice to have you all back. Nick, in the midst of an affordability crisis, 
Has, how has healthcare become the preeminent issue on the minds of Canadians? Well, you know, I think for a lot of Canadians, there are two words that would describe healthcare right now. Hot mess, mm -hmm. right? They see bickering between the provinces and the federal government. They see problems in terms of emergency rooms where there, people can't get into emergency rooms. They're worried about even just getting a doctor or having access to healthcare. And they don't see any movement. You know, it's interesting, for most of the last five months, the focus has been on jobs in the economy and inflation and the cost of living. Mm -hmm. Inflation is still a very important issue and is up there with healthcare, but it looks like healthcare right now is trending up. That means that not only do the feds and the provinces have to get together, Canadians want to hear from all their federal party leaders and parties on health care and what their proposals are. So, Steph, how much pressure does this put on the federal government, particularly the prime minister, to call a first minister's meeting and say, all right, let's talk federal transfer dollars? They can't have that meeting until they've decided what they want to do, right? I mean, mm -hmm. these meetings, let's be honest about them, right? They're, pre they're presented as an opportunity for everybody to get together face-to-face -to, -face to hash stuff out. But really, it's the last step in a long conversation. And if you can't get the health ministers agreeing first on what to do between, you know, Jean-Yves Duclos and his provincial counterparts, if they can't agree, getting an agreement one level up between the premiers and the yeah. prime minister is equally difficult. But I think there's a, a third piece of this, and Nick sort of alluded to it, Canadians. Are Canadians prepared to ask themselves the tough questions and listen to the tough answers about what it might take to fix our healthcare system? The assumption that our system now works, that it's the best in the world, that, you know, we lack for nothing, I think perhaps we're reaching a national consensus where, no, we don't think that anymore. It is broken. It is not serving us. And can we, you know, utter the words, you know, private payer health care, third kind of health care, without right. the country bursting into some kind of existential flame and destroying what we consider a national icon. Are we ready to have that conversation as Canadians? Because until we are, I'm not sure our politicians are going to have it either. So, Ian, do we need that conversation before Indeed. we go forward and start throwing money at it? Indeed. Uh, tomorrow, the Prime Minister will be meeting with the new Premier of British Columbia, David Eby, a new Premier, perhaps with some new perspectives on the health care file, succeeding a uh, former premier who was head of the Council of the Federation. So perhaps there can be some movement, uh, sort of back-channel discussions, as Stephanie refers to, to sort of get going on talks to come up with some kind of agreement on health care funding. Perhaps that we'll see that happen um, uh, happen you know, out of this meeting and out mm -hmm. of further meetings. But, yeah, I think Canadians are looking for some resolution of this issue. Nick, but, you want to jump in? Yeah, I was, I was going to say to Stephanie's point, I think one of the things we have to remember is that politically, anything that smells of Americanization of our healthcare system right. is like political mm -hmm. poison. The other thing is, you got to admit, it's a bit rich. Some of these provinces are running surpluses. And then they're crying that they need and money for health care. Yeah, right? They're handing out checks. Yeah, you they're know? handing I mean, out checks, and then they're saying they need money from the federal government, when the reality is is there's a shared responsibility there to fund health care. It's not just the feds. It's the, health, the federal government and provinces that together have to work together. Yeah, and Steph, there's like Mo Bucks, Daniel Dollars. I mean, you know, call them what you want. Yeah. The money's flowing. The money is flowing. And you know what? We also still haven't had a full accounting of what the provinces did with billions of dollars in COVID money. Mm -hmm. that they were given, right? The promises to expand their ICUs, the promises to, you know, increase hospital funding, build more beds, all of these things. I mean, you know, we don't know. I know, you know, the province of Ontario and others, the premiers were sitting on some of that money. They right. never spent that money. But is it a question of dollars, Mike, right? Or is it yeah. a question of how the dollars are being allocated? And what we can agree on is the best and most efficient use of the money, both that's just sitting in bank accounts and provincial bank accounts, but two, that the federal government might be willing to pony up. Just throwing good money, you know, at a bad problem is yeah. not going to solve 
solve the bad problem in the first place. Yeah. Now, more your polling, Nick, I want to bring up here for people to look at. You also released another poll showing a strong majority of Canadians say the recession is likely or somewhat likely next year. How are fears of a possible recession really impacting the confidence in our economy? Oh, significantly. You know, about about six out of every 10 Canadians think that the economy will work will be weaker in the next six months. And, you know, we're coming to the holiday season, right? right? Uh, I think we're probably looking at a holiday season where people are likely spending less, right? They're going to be kind of buckling down, worried about what might happen in 2023, and they'll be a little more uh, frugal. Are we going to say Scrooge? Is that appropriate? I don't I, know. I don't, I don't think but we should. Spend December, like Scrooge because I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to be marketing anyone. My, but. my kids, my kids certainly don't want to hear that. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, well, Ian, I was going to ask you though. I mean, the yeah. government is trying to rein in spending, or they say they are, anyways. Do you think that's going to do enough to sort of assuage some fears of a, of a recession? Maybe for the minority of Canadians who are watching news conferences and reading media releases and following reporting on government spending. But you I mean, people aren't watching the show, Ian? What are well, you saying? You know, what I'm saying is in their guts, Canadians are probably quite concerned about affordability. They have a yeah. feeling that things aren't going well. And, um, you know, they're, they're really concerned. So perhaps government policy uh, isn't going to sort of... Um, provide any reassurance to them at this time. Again, we'll get through Christmas. We'll see how things develop in the next year, prospect of a recession and such. But uh, no, in answer to your question, I doubt it. No. Yeah, and, and Steph, setting up the spring budget, which will be all important, it seems. Yeah, I mean, the spring budget, for one, always a confidence motion. To what extent does the NDP deal hold? What other levers do they want to see from their Liberals? And let's remember that a lot of the NDP levers involve spending. So will the government continue to spend on those key priorities? How are they going to balance it? Um, you know, and this is, could be the budget the government takes into the next election with the measures they choose or don't choose to roll out. So it'll be an interestingly tense political dynamic to see how the government both tries to do this rein in spending they've promised, these cuts they say are coming against their priorities on things like climate change, perhaps health care and other big ticket issues. And she just raised the ghost of elections past, Nick. So if you want to go ahead with the Scrooge analogy and Charles Dickens, please. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, the thing is, is when was the last time that a minority parliament had an austerity budget. Do you notice there are crickets playing? There are crickets playing right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. You know, usually minority governments are big spenders, and we, in this case, we have a minority government with two partners that are very progressive and want to spend and help Canadians. It's going to be interesting to see how they square that circle come the spring. Yeah, exactly, and we will all be watching. Thank exactly. you all so much again, Stephanie Levitz. Ian Bailey, Nick Nanos, we appreciate you guys being here. That is your Power Play Day in politics. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. We'll be back here tomorrow. Until then, have a great night, everyone.